The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word, friends, in a world where there are so many transient things, God's word stands forever. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together before we look at this passage. Father, we are your people, and we pray that you might take us back into that great story, the story underneath all the other stories, and that you might change us by your word, given to us, Jesus, by one of your closest friends, John. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus Christ is not just another story pointing to ultimate reality. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality to which all the other stories point. The carols, the lights, the trees, Santa, the reindeer, everything about Christmas, Black Friday, all of the celebrations, all of the stories point to the ultimate reality. And the birth of Jesus reminds us that the story is true. That all the yearning in your heart and all the yearning in our children's hearts and in their eyes for the hope that comes to us at Christmas, they remind us and they point us to the ultimate reality who is Jesus, who did not stand far off from us, but he came near to us and he was born, hear me, the king of the universe who made the world was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. It is a story of all stories. Now, in the book of John, he invites us, as it were, into the foyer of his gospel. I wish I could be in your foyer this morning, frankly. I mean, I've been in many of your foyers, many of your homes. So you know the foyer of your house is the part where you first walk in, right through the front door. And I don't know what your foyer looks like this morning. Is it strewn with wrapping paper? 
Are there batteries everywhere from toys? Are there, is everything still put up tightly because you want to hurry up and have the guy finish the sermon so he can get home and open presents? What does your foyer look like? I wish we could all be there to see one another's foyers, but John gives us in the prologue, some early church theologians called this the foyer of the book of John. And in the foyer, you have everything in the gospel here. And John tells you in this foyer of his gospel, in the very beginning, which technically is 18 verses. I only read to you the first 14. He tells you the whole story of the gospel with three words. A three-worded story. So I'm going to tell you that story again. First word, the word in the beginning. The word of light and life. And the word made flesh. Those are John's three words. Word in the beginning, word of light and life, and the word made flesh. You ready? Let's jump in. The word in the beginning. John was the son of Zebedee. He was the one that arguably was Jesus Christ's best friend in the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He was the beloved disciple of Jesus. He was the one who laid his head on Jesus' chest whenever they would line and dine together. In the ancient Near East, you know, you wouldn't have chairs like we have in the Western world. You would actually lean on the person with whom you were dining. Sounds weird to us, but that's the way that they would sit in the ancient Near East. And John would lay his head on Jesus' chest as they would eat together. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. He was the beloved disciple. And here is John, who is a Jew, who is writing to the Jews in the Greek-speaking world. And he uses this strange word, word, which in Greek is the word logos. And for us who speak English, it might be the same as hearing the word reason or reasonable today. The word, the word logos was a very common Greek word. It was used all throughout the Greek-speaking world, and the Jews used it too. And it's the same, um, the word may be analogous to the same way we use the word reason. Like, what does the word reason mean today? It means everything and nothing, doesn't it? Like, you have scientific reason, which means you only believe things based upon scientific fact by proof. And then you have experiential reason, right? Which means that you use your intuition or it feels right, feels reasonable. Or you have common sense reason, which basically is determined by the culture and the society in which you live, right? It makes common sense based upon the social norms of that environment. Well, the word logos was very, very similar to that. And John grabs this word logos, which the Jews used to mean the divine mind of God himself in the Old Testament. It was the word coming into his people, dwelling among his people. It was the Lord's power and presence for the Old Testament saints. The Greeks used this word logos in a very platonic sense, that it was somehow, it was divine intuition it was a way to understand the world, much like we would use the word common sense today. The Greeks used this word as a way, in a philosophical way, to say that it is the wisdom that you're seeking. And so, they used this word all the time. And then the Gnostics, who were an early church heresy, used this word, logos, to mean that it was the special bit of knowledge that was implanted into you that would tell you the truth. It was the good inside of you. 
And John takes this word, this very common word, like the word reason today, and he co-ops it to explain what the gospel is. And he says that the logos was in the very beginning. In the beginning was the logos, which immediately takes you back to where in the story? Back, back to the garden. And children, you remember the story of the garden when God created Adam and Eve, and what did he do? He put them in the, in the midst of a beautiful garden where there was light and life in the garden. They walked together with God hand in hand, kiddos. Do you know that? They were perfectly in fellowship with God, which means it was like better than Christmas morning every day. There was no sin. They could do whatever they wanted to, except for one thing that God asked them not to do, and that was eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam decided, Eve decided, on their own, that they would do the one thing that God commanded them not to do. And they took from the tree and they ate. And as soon as they ate, what happened? The light and the life went out. And now death would come upon them. Not immediately, but eventually. Spiritual death came upon them immediately. Physical death would eventually come upon them. And the light, which was the presence of God himself in the garden, was vanished because they could no longer see him. In fact, Adam went and what? He went and jumped in the bushes. He hid from God. God knew where he was. Adam, where are you? God didn't need to ask, but he did because he wanted Adam to admit that he was hiding from God. And Adam says, God, I was hiding from you because I was afraid. And God had mercy on them. He took an animal and he killed the animal and he wrapped them with the cloth of the animal and he sent them out of the garden. And God told them, one day, someday, one day, someday, there will be one who comes, a new Adam, the serpent will strike his heel, but he will crush the head of the serpent. And no longer again will that serpent win. That was the word in the beginning. Notice that verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That was true in the garden, wasn't it? But the second part of the story is the word of light and life. Because though this word was in the beginning, every single one of us have been trying to figure out how to get back to that garden. Every single one of us have a storyline that helps us know how to get back to the garden. Joni Mitchell, right? Woodstock, 1970. What did she write? We are golden. We are billion-year-old carbon. What did she sing? Stuck in the devil's bargain, trying to figure out how we get ourselves back to the garden. It was the theme of every story from like 1964 until 1974. You know, after, after the, uh, uh, the Great Depression, after World War II came, and we, we experienced this amazing economic revival in the U.S., we entered into a kind of period of personal peace and affluence especially in the West. 
Europe and the U.S. especially. And this, this all came to a head on a college campus in 1964 when we were trying to pursue personal peace, which when I say personal peace, I mean that I want to have peace for myself and I don't really care if it affects my children or if it affects my neighbor. I just want peace for myself. And we became extremely focused on trying to have personal peace and a very selfish definition of the term. And we did that oftentimes by affluence, amassing stuff. And through the 50s and the 60s, you can read in the history books that this was, a, this was part of what drove the economic engine of the U.S. until 1964 when there was a revolt at the University of California at Berkeley. And the students rebelled against this deep sense of longing that they had, that, that they could not find personal peace. And so that divided the nation really in two directions for those who wanted to find personal peace and have affluence. Divided one group of people into the drug scene where they believed that taking drugs was not just a way to like alleviate your worries, but they actually believed it was an ideology that would heal the world of their problems. It was a religion for them. And the other half went toward free speech. And they said, if we can just express ourselves freely, that will bring us personal peace. It's either found in the hippie movement, for lack of a better word, or it was found in the free speech movement in the late 60s, early 70s. And we all know what happened with the drug movement. Woodstock came and the festivals came and the violence came to those festivals. You can read about it in the history books. And the whole drug scene was blown apart. The ideology of taking drugs was ruined and crushed as a way to earn personal peace. More people took drugs after that, but they didn't do it for religious purposes like they did in the late 60s and early 70s. And the free speech movement continued on and still continues on today in many respects. But on occasion, you see the bombings of college campuses. You see violence in the world, people expressing their free speech. And people today oftentimes are left with an utter I don't know how else to say it, a sense of apathy about what really gives me personal peace, what really provides a sense of meaning in life. And so we become very apathetic. And in Oklahoma, I don't know what it is about you, but most of the time it's if we can if we raise our children, personal peace is acquired by raising good kids who go to OSU or OU who come home and they have a good, stable job, and they are great middle-class, upper-middle-class citizens, and they raise their family, and they get them into sports early, and they begin to perpetuate the same, the same tendencies that we have taught them to perpetuate. There's nothing wrong with going to college. There's nothing wrong with coming back to work in your hometown. There's nothing wrong with playing sports at all. But we have substituted the good news of the gospel And we've replaced it with a kind of lifestyle privilege for our children that says the way to personal peace is economic. And you see that so often on Christmas Day because it's hard to cut through the materialism of Christmas to see the real reason for the season. It's hard. It's hard in my family. But that is a gift we give to our kids. That Jesus is not just a story pointing to the ultimate realities, but Jesus is the ultimate reality to which all the other stories of light and life in our world point.
The reason why you want to have a stable job is you want to be able to experience the security that you can only have if you are in union with Christ. The word of light and life is the story that you and I pursue for personal peace and meaning. And all of our stories are in between verses 5 and 6 of John chapter 1. In verse 6, John the Baptist comes and he says, There's a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him that he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And John says, The true light which gives light to everyone is coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of their wisdom, not even of their will, but they were born of God. And this Christmas, the challenge is for us, children, is to know that the ultimate reason for the season, of course, is the birth of Jesus. And he gives the meaning to all the other stories because all the other stories point ultimately to him. Are you with me? And how do we see that? You see that in the third word, very briefly. Not only the word in the beginning, not only the word of light and life, that is the means through which we try to find our own personal logos, as it were. The only way you're going to find that is if you see the word made flesh. You see, the Jews believed that the word was life, and life could be found by keeping the law. You can read about that in verses 15 to 18 in, 1 John, in John 1, if you'd like. But it was found in keeping the law. The Greeks, on the other hand, as 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, believe that the logos, the word, was experienced, meaning, purpose, and life was experienced through intellect and insight and awareness. It was the light that comes to us through our reasonable rationality. But John says, no, 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 no. The true logos of God is that God himself The Word became flesh, and He tabernacled among us. That He came to us, and He lived a life that we could not live, and He died a death that we should have died, so that we might be reconciled with God the Father. That is the story of the Logos, Jews and Greeks. That is the story to which all of your Logoi, if you will, point all of your pursuits for personal happiness and peace, affluency, which has been part of the American experiment since the turn of World War II. It is found in Christ because He alone can provide for you what all of us most long for. Security. It says that Jesus gave us the right. You want personal rights? Jesus gave you the right. You want security? He became... You be Receive the right to become a child of God, eternally secure in His arms. You can never have that revoked. 
It's like a passport. You can lose it. You can't lose it. It never expires. He's got you. And he sings over your lo- you with his love. But if you're going to understand that, you've got to understand the third word, which is the word made flesh. Verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word glory there is exousia. It's power. It is the right, the force by which the Lord displays all of the weight of his might to you. And on this Christmas morning, parents, please hear me. The weight of your dreams for your family and the weight of the Lord's glory are at odds. And until you can yield the weight of your dreams to the much heavier weight of the Lord's glory, you will not experience the peace, prosperity, life you've always longed for yourself and you long for for your children. Which is heavier for you? That's what glory means. It means weightiness. Which is heavier? The dreams you have for your children or the dreams that the Lord Christ has provided for us through his incarnation. And so as you come to the table this morning, as you come, come with the weight of your dreams, of your hopes, of your desires, and the weightiness of the gospel, and test them out. And yield the weight of your dreams to find the greatest security in the Word made flesh. For he dwelt among us. He lived to die for us. And on this morning, as we open presents, we are reminded of his profound presence in each of our hearts. If you are in union with Christ, that means he indwells you. And the receivers this Christmas ought to rejoice that they have received the grace of God. And if you receive the grace of God, it makes you an amazing giver because you don't just give out of what you've mustered up, but you give out of what Christ has given you. That makes for a great Christmas. The Word in the beginning, the Word of light and life, and the Word made flesh, the three words of the great story. Because Jesus Christ is not just a story pointing to the ultimate reality. Jesus Christ is the ultimate reality to which all the other stories of the season point. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will help us now as we prepare for the Lord's table to test our weightiness, our scales, and to lay down our competing ideologies against the gospel. And to know that it is only in Christ, only looking to the one, the word made flesh, and receiving him, that is, believing the gospel, that we can be saved. Oh, Lord, let this Christmas for some in this room become the first Christmas when they got the story. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.